everyone, welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know, so you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle swears revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her... Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast, guys. I promised you an incredible guest, and I can tell you it was worth the wait to get him here to get him on to get him talking to you to get him to share what i think is an unbelievable story so without further ado everyone please welcome chris aslan did i get that yeah. right yeah yeah, aslan. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I always screw up one guest's name a week so i'm like super excited <laughs> when i get it right <laughs> so yeah tell us about your new book and and what was your aha moment in regards to it Hmm. Well, um, I kind of have to take a step back. So I, I ended up living uh, um, in Central Asia, traveling across. First of all, I traveled across the Silk Road as a student, but then ended yeah. up moving back there. And um, I, um, I ended up starting a silk carpet workshop. Where, uh, it was a project working in conjunction with UNESCO, and we were reviving 15th century carpet designs and reintroducing natural dye techniques. And um, so I get, really gave my heart to um, this community that I lived in, that I was part of. And then I got kicked out in quite a horrible way. Um, yeah. And whilst languishing in the transit lounge in Tashkent for a week, uh, I started writing a carpet writer Kiva, which was the first book. And that's yeah. done pretty well, um, particularly given that I was a first time author and that the book is sort of travelogue, except mainly I'm in one place. It's sort of... Yeah. 
um, about textiles. It's a bit of a, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into any one category. So I've been thinking for a while, I'd love to do some kind of sequel because after I was kicked out of Uzbekistan, I then uh, worked with Yak herders in the High Pamirs of Tajikistan for three or four years, teaching yeah. them how to comb their yaks to their cashmere like down. Then I, so I really got to know about nomadism. Um, and then um, and then got kicked out of there as well, got accused of being a spy. Um, not even a spy for the UK, I was a Swiss spy. I don't know quite where the Swiss thing came in. Um, then, <laughs> oh, then I ended yeah. up, well, yeah, we think it's because I worked for a Swedish NGO and they mixed up Sweden and Switzerland, you know, easy mistake. Yep. Um, and then I ended up uh, living in the world's largest wild walnut forest as well for a couple of years in Kyrgyzstan. So I thought I've, I'd really love to sort of tell the, the, the story of what I did next, if you like. And I mm -hmm. began working on it. Um, and I just, it just wasn't, it wasn't working. So I, I said to my editor, look, I think I've just, I don't know, I don't think I know how to write anymore. Um, something's, something is really not working here. And um, so I passed it on to him. And he read through it and he said, Chris, the writing is great. You just, you just don't have a story. Like you haven't got that overarching um, yeah. narrative. You've got anecdotes. So I, I shelved it. And then for a while now, I've been lecturing for the Art Society. And one of my most popular lectures is um, looking at these three textile roads uh, that tangle their way across Central Asia. So everyone's familiar with the Silk Road. You know, we've all heard of that, even if we're not <laughs> sure what it is. Um, but I started to think, actually, there was this wool road that enabled nomadism to take place in this area in the first place. Um, and it was, um, you know, nomads crossing areas where there were no trees and no shelter and where it was vast distances of, of grass stepland. So they, they would have to do it in winter as well as summer. And mm -hmm. of course, they would die of, of exposure um, if they didn't have some, some kind of way of keeping warm. And so they figured out how to have houses that they could travel with, that they could transport, that were light enough to travel with, but also warm enough to keep them from, um, you know, from freezing to death. And those were houses made from wool. So uh, felt is how they did that. So I started to think about, yeah, there's really not just a silk road, there's a wool road as well. And then I thought, actually, there's a cotton road because I'd done quite a bit of research into how Russia had um, invaded Central Asia and why. And it was largely because of its cotton growing potential. And then looking yeah. at the history of cotton, I'd spent time in Moynat, for example, which used to be this beautiful little port on the, the, the edge of the Aral Sea. It even had a, a little airport so that Soviet apparatchiks could fly in with their families and enjoy the seaside. And now it's considered to be one of the worst places on, on the planet. Um, so there's wow. no sea anymore. The sea is completely evaporated. And all of the hundreds of thousands of tons of DDT and defoliants and pesticides that were sprayed on all these cotton crops. And by the way, cotton is 10 times thirstier than wheat. So it needs yeah. 10 times more water. And they're growing it in this area that's largely desert. So um, all of the irrigation that was ha happening and being done quite badly meant that the two main rivers that fed into the Aral Sea weren't, weren't feeding into it anymore. So you then end up with what was the Aral Sea, it's about the size of Sri Lanka, is now the Aral Desert. And uh, it's this chemical cocktail of, of DDT and defoliants and salt and dust, and it gets whipped up into the air. And people who live in Moynak, the, the few who still do, most people have moved because there's no work there anymore. You, everyone used to work in the fisheries or the canning factories. 
Um, yeah. Now they're, I think, like 27 times more likely to get throat cancer there than elsewhere. And it's considered yeah. to be a worse ecological disaster than Chernobyl, just to put things yeah. in perspective. So I just thought, wow, I should, I should write about these three roads. And, and then I'll just kind of weave in some of my own experiences as well. So that was how I came up with um, the concept of unraveling the Silk Road. And I start off with quite a bold statement, which is that everything is about textiles. So yeah. I then try and back that up. Um, and just, I think we live in the age of fast fashion, but also um, certainly here in the UK, very little of the clothing that we wear is made here or manufactured here. It's all yeah. done somewhere else. So we don't really see it. But actually, until the Industrial Revolution, which was started by textiles, um, until that time, the thing that we spent more time on than anything else as humans was textile um, production, clothing ourselves. Yeah. And we're the, only, we're the only animal, we're the only mammal that doesn't either have fur or have brown fat that it can metabolize, like whales or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're kind of screwed. Like we really need yeah. to, unless we're living in the tropics, we need clothing. Um, so I, I think it's quite a fascinating subject, but it's often also been somehow seen as, oh, that's just women's work and therefore not really. Oh, yeah, yeah, worthy. I've heard that, yeah. Exactly, you know. So, so then, and I think history now is beginning to re-examine the world. And uh, so I really wanted to make sure that, that people would understand if they read the book that actually textiles have driven the whole of the topography, the politics, everything about Central Asia is, is really been influenced by these three things, silk, cotton and wool. So, yeah, I love that about. Um, because what people don't realize about Shetland for the longest time mm -hmm. is that now that the oil industry is going under and the fishing industry is, is evaporating, they're focusing on tourism and textiles. Yeah, and Shetland wool and Shetland knitters and Shetland sort of the whole situation with textiles in the island is being sort of pushed forward. And I, I was lucky enough; I grew up with a grandmother who was a professional knitter and was mm. actually of the family of the Jimison Wool Factory. And there's kind of this legacy in Shetland where the wind is so so bad. Like it, it cuts through some of the biggest snowsuits you'll ever find. And yet, if you put on a Shetland jumper, just a Shetland woolly jumper, it can't cut through it. It, it yeah. does not get through, no matter what it tries. And I thought that was always fascinating to me to see how Shetland sheep, who are very suicidal sheep, by the way, can produce this particular wool. That not even this Antar you know, the Arctic winds, the really north cold winds, mm -hmm. you know, these frighteningly strong winds could get through this really sort of stubborn wool material. And I I really thank her for that because she taught me about creating threads from Shetland wool so that your blankets, if you're in the house, would be warmer and how you could do that and how making and knitting blankets for the house and tapestries for the house and that sort of thing to help keep the warmth in at a time where in Shetland we didn't have the insulation, we didn't have the same protections that we do now. But it was fascinating for me to hear and grow up with that as her main push and her main focus. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, if we look at sheep, 
sheep are yeah. fascinating in that the, we know that all sheep, including Shetland sheep, and there's about 360 varieties or breeds of sheep and much more yeah, if you right. do crossbreed. Yeah. Um, and they all have two common ancestors. And one of them we don't know. It doesn't exist anymore. It's extinct. Yep. And the other one is the Asiatic mouflon, which looks much more like a goat. It's got like massive horns, big yep. beard, but it's not fluffy. So wool is something that we have done to sheep. Um, yep. And uh, originally, we know from, from bone fragments, early humans, they figured like, why have mutton when you can have lamb? So they only kept sheep for their meat and they would kill most of their, her, their flocks when they were a year old um, and then just keep a few for breeding. And then we start seeing that pattern shift when they realize that sheep have these side benefits. You know, they produce milk that you can use, dung, which is really important in places like Shetland where you don't have enough fuel from yep. wood and so on. And same, same for the, the nomadic Shetland. Um, and I mean, not to boast or anything, but I do make a really good Thai curry on a yak dung stove. Um, yep. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, so then, they, then they started to realize, oh, some of the sheep have got slightly thicker fur than others. So, of course, they start breeding them and breeding them. And we don't know when the first sheep came along as opposed to proto-sheep, the sh things that we would recognize today as sheep. But we do know that at least 6,000 years ago, there were woolly sheep um, because they found little idols uh, in, in what's now Iran. Um, mm -hmm. And so, of course, now sheep, most sheep can't even um, molt. They have to be sheared. You know, we've done yeah. that to sheep. So we're in a real symbiosis with them now because if they if they were to try and you know make it alone uh, i mean if we all if humans get wiped out by whatever the next virus or something then um sheep are going to have a hard time because you know they, they've got no yeah. one to share them um so uh but it is a miraculous fiber i mean it it can even generate heat when it gets really wet so if, yeah, if does, wool yeah. is really wet it it makes heat i don't understand the chemical process process but it does and it's it's one of the most fire retardant fabrics there are. So now That's every right. single ship and plane and train, all of the carpeting in there will be wool because um, you know it just doesn't burn. And they're starting to to use wool much more in um, army uniforms, um, yep. firefighters, astronauts, all of that because it's just got all these miracle properties to it. Um, so yeah, and I I love that because when we looked at Shetland wool, one of the things that we wanted to do was try to thin it down even further so that you could have the ones that make the jumpers, but then you could also have like the version that would make the threads. So mm -hmm. you could then embroider, you could then expand upon what you could use it for yeah. into other things. But what people don't realize is cutting Shetland wool is really hard. You have to have really seriously sharp scissors like fabric yeah, cutting yeah. scissors yeah. and there's special machines that they have to use and it goes through far more processes than normal wool does mm -hmm. and it takes time and one of the things that i know the islanders are all be going oh my god she's finally promoting us um but one of the things that shetland's fighting for is more funding to explore the textile opportunities that could come from shetland wool that could come from they found a way to actually take fur from cow and make that into a type of wool and type of textile that's slightly different, but it works almost like a heated blanket. Mm -hmm. So if you're on, if you lie down on it, it absorbs the heat that you've given it and it 
and if you could get heating elements to work inside it, it would be probably the longest lasting and probably best lasting heated blanket you could ask for. So there's almost like a push now from Shetland to say, well, we've got these invented ideas. We just don't know how to take it to that next step. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm just waiting for that next Shetland. And because we all have, there's so many inventors that's come from the islands and not, but I'm almost waiting for that next guy that kind of puts the final pieces together of the puzzle and goes, aha, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but not not quite yet, and I I do keep an eye on them, particularly to see what they're what they're coming up with. And one of the things that they're trying to get done is an an industry that they can make Shetland carpets. Okay. Because again, with that wool being as tough as it is and as strong as it is, your carpets would last even longer. Yeah. yeah. And that you know, one of the things that Logan Air did do was it's put Shetland wool into its planes. And it's put it on the backs of their, they've got little fair aisle tabs on the backs of their seats throughout mm -hmm. the plane. And if okay. you look at them, they're in pristine condition. And they're probably older than the entire seats in the place. Mm -hmm. But they survive perfectly. They never have to replace these little fair aisle designs. But they have to replace these leather seats, which I don't understand why we've got leather seats on the planes in Jalen. Because there's a little tiny propeller plane that's constantly going. And then they've got the Shetland wool carpet that, that was a prototype, essentially. Mm. And I just think if they could get the right interest in it, they could really change the world in, of, of textiles and what considered textile. And maybe even help people that are in colder climates have a much better and lasting product moving forward particularly anybody that's in Alaska or in Canada or in the Ar in Antarctic areas because it has yeah. so many uh, amazing qualities to it. I mean, we've also lost some of the best te textiles. I mean, do you know what the most yeah. expensive textile in the world used to be? It, it I wasn't silk. Said, yeah, it was it silk, wasn't yeah. silk. It was Dakar muslin. Oh, so wow. muslin from the, from the area of what's now Bangladesh, the Dakar River area. It was this... Um, cotton tree and the fibers were so incredibly um, strong that they were able to, to spin and what they could only spin it uh, in the monsoon and the women would often be pushed out in boats into the middle of the river where the humidity was greater and often yeah. only only at dusk or dawn would they spin and the the threads that they spun were so fine you could almost not see them they were almost invisible wow. and the resulting cloth was um, basically transparent. So wow. if you look at these old mogul miniatures and stuff, you've got all these women who look topless, but they're not technically. Yeah. And you've got all these men who are wearing very brightly colored trouser, which of course you can see, even though they're wearing a kurta, but the kurta is like a glass kurta almost. And yeah. um, so this, it was 17 times more valuable than silk wow. because it was so complicated to make. Um, and then, the British, when they started to um, uh, colonize India and, and steal its resources, uh, they started off by getting rid of the middlemen who were selling Dakar muslin. And then they forced all the spinners and weavers to only sell to them. And if, if yeah. a weaver was caught selling to someone else, they would have their hand chopped off or whatever. And, you know, they, they, they were very draconian. And then gradually they replaced um, this incredible 
fabric. And, and I mean, the Mughal Empire, you know, you had princesses who were being told off by their fathers for only wearing eight layers of this fabric because you, you could still see her boobs or whatever. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and it was described as people wearing nothing but, um, but a lick of, of water or woven air, you know, had all these very poetic names. Yeah. Uh, but the British basically just replaced it with um, their own manufactured uh, muslin, which was vastly inferior, but much mm-hmm. cheaper. And then they started to plant American upland cotton in India, yep. in the Indian subcontinent. And of course, it crossbred with all of the Dakar muslin. So now it's extinct. You know, we, we, we don't insane, have yeah. that, that, that plant anymore. So these are some of the things that I try and write about, because um, I hadn't fully appreciated how much um, Britain had deindustrialized India. Uh, we'd actually yeah, set did, yeah. the subcontinent back by at least 200 years. And it got mm-hmm. to the point where we'd forced uh, India, India, and when I say India, I'm using it in the pre-partition sense of, you know, that whole area that was yeah. part of British India. Um, we forced them to, to grow cotton, even though that often led to massive famines, because they were saying we should be growing food. Like, no, no, just grow cotton, it will be fine. Um, and we, but we prevented them from producing textiles. And finally, yeah. you've got Gandhi, who um, is this dandy lawyer who loves wearing Western suits and so on. And he's realizing, okay, so we sell our cotton really cheap to Britain. It goes mm-hmm. all the way around the world to Manchester and to Lancashire. It gets, it gets manufactured into cloth, and then they sell it back to us. Like, why are we doing this? So he started yeah. this thing called the Caddy Movement, where he said, look, from now on, we're just going to spin our own cloth and where and we're going to weave our own cloth it's going to be all homemade and uh, they tried to find spinning wheels and the only ones they could find were in museums that's how thoroughly britain yeah. had destroyed the textile industry so he then starts to only wear things that he's made and they have these massive big bonfires of british suits and british clothing um and it's so effective and totally destroys britain's manufacturing capabilities that 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 movement and the promise of fighting with the British in the Second World War are the two main things that lead to, to India's independence. So if you look at the flag of India today, right there in the center, it's got a cotton wheel because cotton is such an yeah. important role. So there's just a lot that people haven't, haven't realized um, ways in which textiles have been part of their lives and history and so on. But also I know it's, 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 it's incredible because when I... I found out the same as you when I did the whole sort of history at school and about how the cotton industry was and then of course I went home and I I said to my grandmother about it and she goes well don't I have a story for you and she sort of kind of really drew me into the whole this is how the island has survived for so Mm -hmm. many years without outside influences and it's it's fascinating to me that Britain's best kept secret is that tiny island to the north that they literally got as a wedding gift from the Norwegians and the Norwegian royal family I'm pretty sure regret it because they had no idea about oil fields or anything like that and here's this little island that everybody forgets about and it's still surviving and it's still creating this amazing world just yeah. within its borders, within that tiny little area. Um, but I think, to be honest, if, you, if when we're looking at the future of textiles, 
looking at the future of how we're going to push that forward and how we're going to make things safer and how we're going to make things last longer and how we're going to combat a lot of these um, environmental things. Textiles mm. is going to be a huge part in that. Well, you know that textiles are the second largest polluter in the world um, yeah. after the oil industry. Yep. So um, we're now getting whole valleys that are filling up with clothes that are made with synthetic fibers, so petrochemical clothes, and no one wants yeah. them. Like, um, there's this myth that, you know, oh, I'll just buy something, wear it for a few times, and then give it to charity. Um, I mean, uh, there's just, because we live in the age of fast fashion, we're not appreciating actually no, all these clothes do cost something if you look at how how many liters of water it takes to produce just one pair of jeans it's a phenomenal amount um yeah. and why why are our clothes so cheap you know somebody's paying just not us and you look at the yeah. conditions in in places like china now and where, especially where slaves are being used Uyghur slavery um and america's done a very good job of ensuring that every single um, importer of Chinese manufactured goods has to prove the onus is on them to prove that it wasn't made by Sai Uyghur slave labor. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, we, we need to get into a world where we mend. Um, mm -hmm. There's this great book called Worn that came out, I think, a year or so ago. And the woman who wrote it from New England, and she writes about going into some of the old houses that are now museums, and they don't have wardrobes, they just have a hook because you would wear the same clothes. Monday to Saturday, wash them on Saturday, hang them up to dry um, and put on your Sunday best on Sunday. And you just needed a hook for your Sunday best. Um, yeah. Whereas now, you know, we're needing larger and larger wardrobes because we just have so many clothes. Um, so one of the things I would say, and I hope people who read the book will, will realize, you know, either spend the money and buy something fabulous, like something that's not not fabulous because it's got some well-known brand name on it, but but actually well-made um, yeah. and that will last. You know, like a Shetland jumper that you'll pay a hundred quid for at least, but you'll you know you're going to wear that now for the next twenty years. Or, thirty, yeah, thirty, thirty, or 30 40 years, yeah, yeah. Or just or you know go on Vinted or eBay or whatever, uh, or to a charity shop and just get into buying secondhand. And that's um, what I do, and and yeah. I think I, I think I scare a lot of my friends with that because I grew up in Shetland where you couldn't just get things like that. We didn't have stores like super chains or anything mm. else. So as a kid, we would go to the local shop that the one shop in the island that sold clothes, mm. and you just made do with what was there. And yeah. I have jeans that I still wear that I got it. I was thirteen. I was 13 years old, and I still wear that same pair of jeans to this day. Well, that, that, they're the height of fashion now, aren't they? You know, it's all, yeah. I think uh, I, it's all come I, back I in. never stopped wearing them, and my friends from the States, they just can't even comprehend. Like, I do have a large pile of clothes, but I circulate them so that hmm. I can constantly be reusing things. I only ever give it up when it gets to that point where I can't fix it. Or it is far too small for me because it's shrunk too much in the tumble dryer. Or the, the washing has finally killed it. And then I'll replace it with something. But that's what that pile is, is so that I can go for years without having to buy anything new. And I can work through it. Like I've got a Shetland Christmas dress that I think I've worn for years now. And it looks brand new. 
still to this day. It's been washed maybe several hundred times, and it still looks brand new, and it is the best dress ever because it certainly keeps out the gold. And I'll love that dress for the rest of the time because I knew who made it. I knew where it came from. I knew the sheets that, that I essentially gave me it. And it just meant so much more. And I think I'm hoping that like people my age, I'm 34, but I'm seeing there is people starting to get into that train of thought, particularly in my generation, and are trying to implant that in kids that are following us. That this is the way forward. That this is maybe mm-hmm. the best way of of helping the environment if they're serious about helping the environment but i think we're still going to be in an age of social media and media and all that which plays a huge part in our lives and does challenge the things that we want the things that we see all the time and that the attitudes of different countries and different cultures compared to our own. yeah yeah well good for you for recycling and mending that's that's what we need to be doing more of. Um, yeah, and I make a lot of my own quilts just oh, for the it. sake of knowing that I spent the time. Like, and I give quilts that I make to other people so that they have something that's treasured, that's something that somebody's made for them, that it has yeah. value to them. And I think that's another attitude we need to kind of get into is appreciating that even though we might not know the person that's made our quilts, that somebody sat there and has made it. Somebody has mm-hmm. sat there and sweated and probably cried and stuck their finger or ran over their finger with the sewing machine or whatever it is and has put that effort in to give us the stuff that keeps us warm or that keeps us cool in the summer. And that's important. Yeah. I think the so other t- thing that I was hoping to achieve with, with um, the book was, was also yeah. to get across that um, textiles can be an adventure. You know, so yeah, for me, yeah. working with yak herders, um, lit, you know, I've, I had so, I, I've had a gun pointed at me whilst naked. I've been stung by a scorpion on the heart three times. I've been dodging bullets in Afghanistan. I've been in a, uh, um, I, I've held a snow leopard in my in my arms. You know, all these sorts of things that I, I wouldn't have have experienced if I hadn't been living in Central Asia. And if yeah. I hadn't been doing the sort of things that I was doing with textiles. Of course. So yeah. um, definitely want to get away from the idea that textiles have to be all kind of twee and cosy. Because uh, mm-hmm. it, really, it can be that, but it can be yeah. lots of other things as well. Anyway. And it, it, it is more than just a woman thing. Like, I, I feel like that needs to be out there. This world is, you know, we're all about equality and we're all pushing for equality. But part of that equality and part of understanding that equality is realizing that it's we shouldn't be making stereotypes about what jobs both men and women can do and I think Mm -hmm. that's an attitude we keep still pushing and keep saying you know it's not weird for a guy to be interested in clothes it doesn't necessarily make him gay because he's interested in textiles or he's interested in finding out how the clothes he loves was made that's not a weird thing. That's that's something that's part of human nature. Um, and I'm one of the biggest advocates for that. I think I've spoken up in a number of different worlds and a number of different societies and said, why are we making such very human, natural things into stereotypes and into things that minimize people and force people to feel 
labelized and oppressed. Well, I think in some of the Scottish islands, it was the men that did the knitting because they would be fishing during the, during the, the fair weather. And yep. during foul weather, they spend the evenings making their thick jumpers, which they would leave the, the lanolin in. And when you mm-hmm. leave that, that natural grease, um, it does make for a, you know, a fairly ripe smelling uh, it sweater does. or a jumper. It really does. But um, it, it will make something that's breathable and also water repellent or water breathing. So, um, yeah. yeah. And uh, I hate to tell everybody, but when you are wearing a Shetland jumper, you know you're wearing a Shetland jumper because no matter how much softener you put in it, you know it's come from Shetland. You can smell the peat. You can smell the sea. You can yeah. smell the salt. And sometimes you can still smell the sheep. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it uh, does take a few washes to get it, get rid of the, the sheepy smell, but it will last. And it, it, it is, I don't know exactly what's in those fibers, but whatever it is, is incredible. And I've sat with Shetland wool, which mm-hmm. can feel really itchy till you get the softener going, but is worth it. It really is worth it to sit and knit your own blanket or your own jumper and your, you know, the own your winter gloves and your hats and your scarves and, and stuff like that. There have been some studies recently where they found that teenage boys who have ADHD benefit massively from either knitting or crocheting because yeah. it, when, they, when their hands are busy with that, it uses up that extra fizz and it means they can actually concentrate better and, mm-hmm. uh, and they do better at school and so on. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, I think we just need to get away from being as gendered as we have been in the past. And as we're getting now, I mean, now you could argue that if if a girl is showing interest in something that's more, that's a traditional boys thing, that somehow, oh, she must be trans. Why? Yeah. Let's, let's just get away from all these kind of sexist um, and labels, stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, if you're into what you're into, you're into what you're into. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. I think that that's one of the big things I advocated with kids when I was in the youth club system was promoting this idea that no matter whatever your dreams are your interests are that's okay that's a natural thing and it doesn't labelize you as anything and we don't need to worry about labels or or meanings or anything to do with that we just need to be aware that we are all human and we all love things in our own way and we all love each other in our own way and and we need to just accept that for what it is so what books is getting you right really excited right now? Yeah, so um I um I write fiction as well as nonfiction and yep. um I have just what one of the chapters in the book I uh, in Unraveling the Silk Road um that I did a lot of research for was um this amazing period in history that no one knows about. Um uh in nineteen twenty seven the the Soviet government in Tashkent. Yeah. They, they were mainly Slavic, you know, many Russian people, and they realized we are just not winning anybody here for socialism. Um, yeah. So we need to kind of give up on the class thing for a little while. We need to basically try gender instead of class. So they decided yeah. we're, the oppressed people here are not the, the proletariat, it's the women. So they had this big campaign to try and get women to unveil themselves, and they couldn't force them to, they couldn't make it a law. But at the same time, they they were very coercive and very persuasive. So they had the power of the media and posters and propaganda. Um, and of course, as women started to unveil, they were then getting killed by their husbands or, or by their yeah. fathers and, and, and brothers in shame killing. So um, I've just 
done my first foray into crime fiction. So I've just oh, written wow. a novel exploring yeah. this world, and I've got a I've got an Uzbek woman as my protagonist who's she's caught she works in the women's department and she's caught between this kind of slavic world and then the world that she's come from and doesn't really fit in either and then when when someone that she she loves is, is murdered she decides she's going to find out who did it and make them pay so um oh, wow. so i've been reading a, uh, trying to read a bit of crime fiction as i've been writing it and um especially looking at crime fiction set in the soviet union and nearly always it's set, they're set in russia uh, novels about the Soviet Union rather than any of the other parts of the Soviet Union and they're usually from the 60s 70s rather than earlier um, mm -hmm. so I've not found much but I've really enjoyed Owen Matthews who's written a trilogy yeah. um, of sort of spy thrillers that, that are really some of the better ones I think uh, to come out recently that, uh, and he, he's got um, a Russian background as well so I think that helps it, it yeah. feels like he's done his research because I've I've also read one or two where I just thought, oh my gosh this is just rubbish <laughs> not just oh there's the, the, the several but, of those yeah <laughs> yeah when they haven't quite got it but I I am um, I, I was just in Central Asia because I I take tours there and um, so I thought I'll give myself permission to read something that's nothing to do with with research for for, for the, the the series I'm working on right now. So um, I ended up reading uh, Demon Copperhead uh, by right. Barbara Kingsolver and absolutely loved it. So I don't know how much, I don't know if you're familiar with the story or how it came about. but I've heard uh, snippets about it. I, I just haven't had a like, real sort of chance to dig into it and to kind of understand it, I would suppose, yeah. Okay. Well, she um, she's from West, West Virginia uh, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the area that has, it's the butt of everyone's jokes about white trash and hillbillies and rednecks and, and so on. Yep. And um, she'd been wanting to write a story set there um, that dealt with the opioid crisis with Oxy and, you know, um, the Sackler um, clan and all the evil things that they had done with, with promoting, uh, yeah, drugs basically and making them legal. Yeah. So um, she was trying to figure out how to, what was going to be her in. So she knew what the theme was going to be. And then she was in England um, visiting Charles, um, Charles Dickens. Yeah, Charles Dickens' house. And um, suddenly it came to her. She thought, yes, it's got to be David Copperfield. So she, <laughs> takes, the, she takes the narrative beats, if you like, um, yeah. of David Copperfield and, and transplants it all. So it's still very much its own story. It's not. But it, it's its own story, but it's also paying homage. So David Copperfield becomes Demon Copperhead, and um, Uriah Heep, who's one of the characters in the original Dickens, becomes U-Haul yeah. Pile. Um, and uh, so you know there are nods. That the, the names aren't the same, and nor should they be, um, of the characters, and the characters aren't the same either. But mm -hmm. what I really loved about it is um, I thought she captured the voice of a horny teenager really, really well. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it really opened my eyes to the opioid crisis. Now I'm doing a lot more reading up on it because I just felt quite ignorant about it. Um, I, I did know roughly about it, but I'm learning more just how devastating yeah. it was. But what I really like about the, the, the book, um, other than the fact it's a very immersive read, is that 
that kind of Dickensian world of orphans being exploited, we like to think of as being historical, as in not happening now, but it, but mm. it is happening. And it's not just happening in, in developing countries, it's happening in places like the States. And it is, writes, yeah. Yeah, and she writes with a real kind of fury about this whole idea that many people have of, oh, the poor are just poor because, you know, they're lazy. She's mm-hmm. trying to get across, no, there are whole systemic reasons why the poor will remain poor. So, um, and I think in this age of looking at who are the sort of, who are the people that have been forgotten about that are now being brought into the, into the, the centre, you know, I suppose we would call this diversity and inclusion. I think mm-hmm. it's been really good for her to write a book about the white working class and to try yeah. and put class back on the agenda in the States where race has tended to dominate. And again, I think in America, race and class are very much intertwined in a way that they're not in the same way in the UK. But um, I love the fact that she's really writing with fury about if you are working class, in this case, white working class, it's pretty hard not to say working class. Um, yeah, that, no, that, that is, is true. Yeah. I love that. So what is the readers got to look forward to with you moving forward? What, what projects are you most excited about to share with them? Yeah, so I've, I've, I'm a bit eclectic in my reading taste, but also in my writing as well. Um, so at the moment, uh, yeah, I've been working on this book. It, it, the working title at the moment is uh, The Unveiled Assault. And, okay, um, cool. So, so that's this story of this, this kind of murder mystery. And, and uh, yeah, I'd like to, to do a sequel to it as well. I've, I've kind of got three books in mind. Um, I've also done something that's quite, so it's Christmas related. It's called Frankincense, and it's. Oh, I really wow. wanted to explore some of an imagined backstory of um, someone who was part of the Magi party that made their way westwards to Bethlehem, um, and but also I thought, I mean, you've you've got to have something new uh, because it's a well-worn story. I think everybody knows mm-hmm. roughly. Most people have been in the nativity play at some point in their in their childhood. Um, so it's it's a, a story of a grandfather who is who tells his son his grandson you've got to come with me on a journey and the the, the grandson's a kind of little pampered fat boy who's a, who who has no intention of the hardships of travel and he says why do i need to go and the grandfather says well i'll tell you as we go so it's two narratives oh i love that yeah um and um I, yeah, I really enjoyed writing that. So I'm hoping that will come out at some point in the next year or so. Um, but that'd be cool. I will look out for that. We'll have to have you back to talk about that because I think that story is so unique compared to what else we're seeing out there right now. And I think it's a good one for reminding us all that we're slightly different in our mm-hmm. own sort of generations. And it's more like a generational story too. And I think that will really resound with a lot of readers right now. Great. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Well, you survived the Book and Life podcast. Told you it would be really quick and painless and easy. Uh, guys, you're going to want to come back next week as we've got another amazing bestseller who's coming on to have a chit-chat with us. But for now, please everyone be safe and uh, we will see you all again on Monday.